as the kids are making their way to their classes, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation one more time. Last page of your Bible. Next week, we will start on the very next page, which in my Bible is weights and measures. So we'll just keep walking through. Last chapter of the last book of the Bible. This morning, we will conclude our study of the book of Revelation. We started, I don't know if you realize this, but we started the Sunday after Easter this past year. And uh, this morning, we will, 43 sermons later, we will finish the Sunday before Easter. The purpose of the book that we've held to all throughout is to equip the church of John's day, of previous generations, of our day, and of future generations. To equip the church to persevere through suffering and trial and persecution for the glory of God. John the Apostle was exiled on an island. He was an old man, mid-80s at this point. And why was he exiled? Because he refused to recant in his belief in a resurrected Jesus Christ. All of the other apostles, they didn't recant either. And as a result of that, according to tradition, they were all martyred because of their belief in Christ. But not John. John didn't recant either, but instead of being executed, he was exiled to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, halfway between Athens and Ephesus. And while he's there, he's visited by an angel who gives him a vision of what must soon take place, he says. And this vision was literally an unveiling. That's what the very first word of Revelation means, apocalypsis. It means the unveiling. And what was being unveiled for John and for his readers and for us is God's plan for that which must soon take place in the future. Now, we've talked in here many times about how not everyone interprets everything about Revelation the same. That should be abundantly clear to all of us by now. Some of us will say that a majority of these visions find fulfillment in the first century. Some of us say that a majority of these visions find fulfillment throughout the church age between the two advents of Christ. While others will say that a majority of these visions find their fulfillment in the end times, in the future. But no matter what flavor of eschatology we prefer, every one of us can agree that at least the last few chapters describe what is coming in the end, that Jesus is coming back and that he will set up his eternal kingdom and that we who are his by grace through faith in Christ alone will reign with him and worship him forever. A year ago, we began with the prologue of the Revelation 
in the opening verses of chapter 1. And this morning, we will close our study of Revelation by looking at the epilogue of the Revelation in the closing verses of chapter 22. Last week, we left off at verse 5 with that glorious description of the new Jerusalem, the city of God coming down out of heaven from God. And that dwelling place where we will dwell with God and he will dwell with his people forever. So now let's let's pick up in verse 6 and read through the end of the Bible. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. To repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Our Father, we once again, Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you, Father, that you have inspired it. These are your words, this is your breath. And Father, we thank you that you have preserved it throughout the ages so that we know that what we hold in our hands truly is your word. And Father, as we conclude this 
collection of visions inspired by you, given to your servant John to write down in this book. We pray, Father, that you would do that which we believe to be its purpose, that you would equip this church, that you would prepare us, that you would mature us and build us up so that we stand ready to withstand not just the sufferings of our day, but the sufferings and trials which may come in our future. Father, so that you might be glorified through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was studying this passage this week, I found it difficult to discern a clear outline from this passage. I don't know if you sensed that as we were reading through it. There seems to be an absence of a clear unifying thought that takes us from one verse to the other. It's almost as if John is concluding Revelation here and wrapping up a lot of his thoughts and there doesn't seem to be one central concrete thought that flows from one to the next. There are five different speakers in these closing verses. We, of course, hear from the angel. We hear from Jesus. We hear from John himself. We hear from the bride, which is the church, and we hear from the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do this morning is a bit different. This will still be expositional, but we're not going to walk through this verse by verse. Instead, this morning, I want us to be exposed to this passage by looking at some themes that recur as we walk through this epilogue. So there's four themes in total that I see that carry us through this passage. And the first is the authenticity and inspiration and importance of the book itself, the book of Revelation. In verse 6, the angel says to John, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. I don't know if you catch that, but the beginning of the prologue at the beginning of Revelation sounds very similar to what we have here at the beginning of the epilogue in chapter 22. In fact, listen to chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of Revelation. John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. We have very much the same here in the epilogue. So the angel is the angel that showed John the New Jerusalem in the previous passage. And this angel now summarizes the entire collection of these visions in this book that have been shown to John and tells him these words are trustworthy and true. Well, what words is the angel referring to? Well, if you remember back in chapter 1, when John was given the first vision of Jesus, he heard a loud voice like a trumpet calling. And that voice said to him, Write what you see and in a book and send it to the seven churches. Not just the seven churches of Asia Minor, 
in chapters 2 and 3, but to all churches, to us today as well. And then John turned around and he saw one like a son of man standing. He was clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his waist, his head white as wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars representing the churches, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This was Jesus, the Lamb, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And he says to John at the very outset of Revelation, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that must soon take place after this. So Jesus instructed John to write down these visions, to write down what the angels show him. And John obeyed. And the product of his obedience is the book of Revelation. And the angel said, these words are trustworthy and true. And they're trustworthy and true because they are inspired. And they're trustworthy and true because God sees that they are delivered to John by way of divine messenger. In verse 6, it's the angel that showed him the new Jerusalem. He said, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then Jesus confirms this down in verse 16. I, Jesus, he says, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for these churches, for the churches. And so these words refers to all of Revelation, the entire book. And the entire book is authentic and inspired and divinely given And so consequently, it is very, very important. I'm thankful that we've had a year to study this book over the last 12 months. If for no other reason that I have benefited greatly from it. I have never studied the book of Revelation to the degree that we have over the last 12 months. In fact, if I'm honest... I would say that it's probably the most overlooked book in the New Testament in my own personal Bible readings. To be honest, I was probably a bit intimidated by the fact over the years that there are many, many scholars who don't agree on the finer points of what's discussed here. And so I just, I guess, figured that if people who are a lot smarter than me can't agree on this, then what hope do I have? Plus, we talk a lot in here about theological triage, that not every point of doctrine is of equal importance. And I think that is true. Not everything is as important as justification. Eschatology is not as important as sanctification and the deity of Christ and finer points of soteriology. And while that may be true, that doesn't mean that the book of Revelation is not important. In fact, I think it would be important for us who hold to the value of theological triage to delineate here that while eschatology may not be of primary importance, 
the book of Revelation is. The book of Revelation is of primary importance, at least of equal importance to every other book in the canon of Scripture. It is trustworthy and true. And remember the first beatitude from chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. We shouldn't ignore Revelation because it's a very important part of the counsel of God in the Scriptures. So important, in fact, that we're given a warning here in this passage. A warning not to add to it or take away from it. And while we often quote verses 18 and 19 as a warning against adding to or taking away from the Bible as a whole, and I, I think certainly that is a, it, it, it does mean that, but specifically and particularly here, it means do not add to this book. Do not add to Revelation or take away from it. I don't think John there is meaning that he's, I don't think he's referring to the differences of opinion that we have about the meaning of these various visions and what they refer to. He's talking about deliberately distorting this book and God's message by adding to it and embellishing it or by avoiding certain parts of it because they're hard or they're difficult to hear. And I hope by God's grace that I have been faithful to this text over the last year because this comes with a very, very severe warning. But I would submit to you that there would be no reason for a severe warning if this book wasn't very important. So important, in fact, that the angel says to John in verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't seal it up, he says. Now, it's interesting to note that that's exactly the opposite of what the archangel Michael says to Daniel in that book, right after Daniel receives a corresponding vision of God's eternal kingdom. In Daniel chapter, 20, chapter 12, verse 4, the archangel Michael says to him, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So in Daniel's day, the prophecy of that which was to come was to be sealed up because it wasn't time. But now in John's day, since we're in the last days, these words are not to be shut up and sealed, for the time is near. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful that the words of the prophecy of this book are not sealed to us. Instead, John obediently wrote them down as Jesus instructed him, and they are recorded in the canon of Scripture for us today. And so I believe and I trust that our time in Revelation has been useful because this book is authentic, inspired, and important. That's the first theme. The second theme that we see in this epilogue is this repeating exhortation that we've seen so often of persevering obedience in light of what's true here. 
Jesus himself speaks in verse 7. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is he who keeps this. The words of this book are important not just because they will tell us about what must soon take place, but they're important because of what they're calling us to do and what they're calling us to be in light of what must soon take place. We've said over and over again throughout our study that that the primary purpose of the book of Revelation is not to give us a crystal clear roadmap of everything that's going to happen in the eschaton. I'm convinced that if that were the purpose, our gracious Lord would have made this a lot less confusing than it is. Instead, the purpose here, I'm convinced, is to equip the church, as we said, of John's day and ours, to persevere through suffering and trial and persecution for the glory of God. John's first century audience certainly would have understood this in their own day. They were experiencing persecution. As we read in the letters from Jesus to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, some of them have died because of their faith in Christ. They were put to death. Others of them were left out of the marketplace left out of the economy of the day because they refused to recant in their trust and their belief in a risen Christ. They were being excluded from the marketplace of the day. And so for them, in John's description of the tribulation, for example, the description of the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments that we found In those middle verses, in those descriptions of the tribulation, they would have seen reflections of their own suffering in their day. They would have seen reflections of of their own trials and persecution at the hand of the emperor. And in John's description of the Antichrist, they would have seen reflections of the emperor Nero several years previous. Or reflections of Emperor Domitian, who was in reign and in power at that time. And in John's description of the great prostitute Babylon, they would have seen reflections of Rome itself and the appeal that Rome had on the people of their day, sexually, immorally, intellectually, and spiritually. And in Babylon's fall and in Antichrist's destruction, And in the return of Christ and his victory over the kings of the earth and the armies of the earth and the saints that stood with him in victory, these first century saints would have been incredibly encouraged to remain faithful and steadfast and persevere in the midst of their fiery trial. And friend, I think the same effect of Revelation should be true for us today as well. Over and over again, we've been exhorted by John to keep the words of this prophecy, to be overcomers and to be those who conquer. That's what Jesus said to the the churches that he wrote the letters to in chapters 2 and 3 over and over again, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. 
And then chapter 1, verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed is he who hears it and who keeps the words of this prophecy for the time is near. What does it mean to keep the words of this prophecy? I think it means to live in light of the fact that these things are true. To live today as if we really believed what is fleshed out for us in these visions. That this is truly what will soon take place. To live today in light of that. To have that eternal perspective always with us in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our decisions, what we give our lives to. We live in light of the fact that this stuff is true. And I think our application of that truth can be categorized into three main areas. First, our sanctification, our worship, and our evangelism. And while we see examples of these three areas of application in the verses of this epilogue, we've seen reflections of them all throughout our study of the book of Revelation. First, our sanctification. Church, if we are not encouraged and compelled to grow in our walk with Christ as a result of having studied the book of Revelation, then we've done it wrong. Either I've preached it wrong, you've heard it wrong, or we've applied it wrong. Part of keeping the words of this prophecy is is growing in our faith that that we believe Jesus more completely. Growing in our obedience to Jesus, that we, that we follow Jesus more fully. Growing in our mortification of sin, that we, that we seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh and fight against indwelling sin more ruthlessly. And then we grow in our dependence on the Word, our dependence on the Spirit indwelling in us, and our dependence on prayer. To overcome and to conquer as Jesus exhorts the churches means to look more like Jesus. And that happens as we both embrace the suffering that is a reality of the world around us, as well as we embrace the promise that our King is coming back and that when He does, there will be no suffering ever again. That's what makes us a conqueror. That what That's what makes us an overcomer. Living in light of these truths ought to fuel our sanctification. But it also ought to fuel our worship. It ought to fuel our worship. Certainly, it goes without saying that worship has been a central theme throughout the entire book of Revelation. And certainly, it's a theme in the epilogue as well. Look at verses 8 and 9. John himself speaks here. He says, I, John... Am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and, we, and with your brothers and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. If you're paying attention, this is the second time that John's done this. You'd think that he would learn at some point not to do this. Back in chapter 19, having received the vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb, John does the very same thing. He worships the angel and he's rebuked by the angel. Worship God alone. 
He's the only one worthy. I suppose it's normal for mankind to be in awe of such magnificent visions. I mean, take for example the vision that was just concluded for us last week. The new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the streets of gold like transparent glass, the city with 12 gates, each gate made of a single pearl, the, the incredible beauty and the amazing enormity of the new creation as depicted by John in that vision must have inspired just awe, absolutely awe-inspiring. But the only object worthy of worship in this creation and in the new creation is God. So the angel says, worship God. Some of my favorite passages in Revelation have been those scenes of the throne room. And as John sees the picture of the activity going on around the throne, it's all about worship. If you recall back in chapter 4, John sees a throne in heaven and the one seated on the throne. And around the throne were these four living creatures. Imagine that. Four magnificent beasts, angelic creatures. And these four living creatures, day and night, we're told, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders were also around that throne. And whenever the four living creatures gave glory to God, the 24 elders fell down on their face and they took off their crowns and laid them at the throne. And they began to sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all, your, all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What an incredible display of worship. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 5, after Jesus, the Lamb, is given the scroll, because as we sang, He was the only one who was worthy to open the scroll and to reveal God's plans of what must soon take place. After that, in response to that, both the four living creatures and the 24 elders sang together, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor forever and ever. And then, as if that wasn't enough, in response to that, the rest of the host of heaven joined in and sang to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then in chapter 7, the vision of the throne room of chapters 4 and 5 becomes the prophecy of a throne room in the future where the throne is surrounded by a great uncountable multitude, a people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language who were standing before the throne and the Lamb. This is us, church. This is us who have, who have professed faith in Christ. 
clothed in white robes, he says, with palm branches in our hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb forever. What an incredible vision of what we will do in everlasting life. You know, I've heard some people say, not in here necessarily, but I've heard people say in the past, you know, I'm not sure that I'm going to enjoy heaven because I'm not really into music and singing. To which I would respond, first of all, what we've said in here before, worship is not just what we do with our lips, it's what we do with our lives. As we seek to give glory to God in all that we do. But secondly, the kind of worship described in Revelation here is not so much about what we will do in terms of singing and falling prostrate and waving palm branches and laying our crowns down at His feet. It's not so much about what we will do and the focus is not on how we'll worship, but the focus instead is on the worthiness of the one to whom we will give the worship. The Lamb is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. And if we're not convinced of His worthiness in this life, we will certainly be convinced of it then. And so as we live today and we read the words of this prophecy, they ought to fuel not just our sanctification but our worship. But then thirdly, the words of this prophecy also ought to fuel our evangelism. Jesus again speaks in verse 12 and he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The word translated recompense there literally means wages, what is due to us, what we deserve. There's a synonym for that that we find in Paul's words in Romans 6.23 where he says the wages of sin is death. What we deserve, what is due to us because of our sin is eternal separation from God. Jesus is saying that when he comes back, he's going to bring what we deserve. He's going to bring us our recompense to the sinner whose sin has been covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ, we will receive our recompense. What is his due? What are the wages of one whose sin has been covered by the blood of Christ? Doesn't he deserve judgment for his sin? Well, he does. But by God's sovereign grace, the believer who's trusted in Christ alone to save him The judgment for his sin is placed on Jesus at Calvary. And he's given the righteousness of Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a pretty good trade. So what is the recompense for the believer in Christ? Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. But to the sinner whose sin has not been covered by the blood of Christ, they've not come to faith in Jesus, what is their recompense? 
What will be their recompense for the unbeliever? Verse 15, outside. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So what does the unbeliever deserve? What is their recompense? What is their due? Outside. Outside the city, outside the gate, outside the new creation. And that's, by the way, not just outside the gate. It's in the lake of fire. And out of a genuine love, concern for our neighbor, our coworker, our friend, perhaps even our family member, out of a genuine love and concern for them, we don't want that to be their eternal condition. Revelation ought to compel us to greater faithfulness in evangelism really for two reasons. First, out of, out of a love for neighbor, out of, out of a love of our neighbor, we want to warn our neighbor, our coworker, our friend, whatever, we want to warn them that judgment is coming. That's love of our neighbor to do that. But also out of a love for God. Revelation reminds us that there is only one God who deserves worship. And we want to see him worshiped even by those who now currently are worshiping other gods or they're worshiping themselves. They were created to worship God. And God is the only one who deserves their worship. And so we want him to have it. Is it because this stuff is true, because this stuff is trustworthy and true, as the angel tells us, it ought to compel us and, and fuel us in our growth in Christ, our sanctification, our worship, and our evangelism. The third theme that we see in this epilogue is that Jesus is returning soon. The return of Christ is soon. Jesus says this in this epilogue, not once, not twice, but three times. Verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And with the vast wealth of my hermeneutical skills, I would say this means that Jesus is coming soon. But it's been 2,000 years. So what gives? In fact, at this time, when John wrote Revelation, it had already been 60 years since Jesus had died and rose again and ascended to heaven. And the people of that day were expecting Jesus to return soon. So what gives? What, what's the reason for this, what seems to be a delay? Well, for, for one, we know that with the Lord... A thousand years or as a day, and a day is as, as is a thousand years. Peter was addressing this very concern when he wrote his second epistle. Listen to 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. It's a quote from Psalm 90, verse 4. So if it's been roughly 2,000 years since the ascension of Christ, his resurrection and ascension in God's economy, it's been a couple of days. Verses 9 and 10 of that same passage, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God intends to bring in the full number of his elect. And there are sheep that are of his fold that aren't in the pen yet. Not all of his sheep are accounted for yet. In his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, to the peoples, and then the end will come. And so the end will not come until our job of taking the gospel to the nations has been completed. And the good shepherd has all his sheep in the pen. But Jesus promises, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And whether we interpret this to mean the imminence of his return, meaning that he could return at any moment, or whether we interpret this to mean simply that in God's economy, it is not long before he comes back, we can all agree that we don't have forever here. This is not our home. Revelation teaches us that this place, this earth, this body is temporary. Revelation teaches that, that this world is passing away. And everything in it is, is passing away. and won't last. And though our bodies will be buried in the dirt, perishable, it will be raised imperishable. We will be, by faith in Christ, resurrected as he was re- resurrected, that we get to celebrate this next Sunday. And we will reign with him forever in glory, forever. And all this is possible because Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. Church, may we live in the here and now in light of the fact that Jesus is coming soon. And may our hearts echo the cry of John himself in verse 20 when he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then finally, a fourth theme that we see in this epilogue is the theme of the gospel. I see the theme of the gospel in at least three places in this passage. First, I see it in the washed robes of the saints. Look again at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right, have the right to, to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And how are their robes washed? Well, remember after the throne room vision in chapter 7, one of the elders in that vision tells John about the identity of the great uncountable multitude gathered around the throne who were wearing the white robes. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It was a clear reference to the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus. The price that he paid at Calvary. That which we'll commemorate at our Good Friday service this coming Friday night. Where Jesus' blood was shed for sinners like us. 
Their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. But instead of coming out of that washing stained with that blood, those robes come out clean and white and washed. What a beautiful reminder of the gospel that we are made clean. Sinners like us, filthy, rotten sinners, are made clean only by the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf. Secondly, we see the theme of the gospel in the bad news that sinners will get what they deserve. Sinners will get what they deserve. Again, verse 15. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And you know, we who are in Christ, sadly, we should admit that this rightly describes us to a large degree as well. We also could be called dogs. Dogs here was slang for covenant violators. And who among us is not one of those? We have violated God's covenant. We are dogs and that's not a good thing. Jesus told us that if we look at a woman with lust in our heart, we've committed adultery with her in our own mind. And so, to one degree or another, many of us could be labeled as sexually immoral. What about murderers? Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, if you insult him or you call him a fool, then it's like you've murdered him in your heart. And so, we are, all of us, murderers. And who in here has not flirted with idols or told a falsehood? We all deserve to be outside. But we aren't. And again, the reason is because the Lamb went out outside the gates of the first Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and paid the price that we deserve at Calvary. He paid the price for us, for our sexual immorality, our murderous thoughts, our idolatry, our lies, and our dishonesty, and through faith in Him as our substitute as our Redeemer and Lord, we're graciously allowed access into the New Jerusalem. But those who don't come to faith in Jesus Christ will be outside. And friend, if that describes you this morning, you will be outside that city unless you come to faith in Christ. We also see this very same thing in that obscure verse in verse 11. Where the angel says, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. On the surface, that seems like a very strange thing for the angel to tell John. Does he really mean here that John should not try to reach those who are doing evil, or those who are living filthy lives, that he should just let them wallow in their evil doing and wallow in the filthiness of their sin? Well, no, that's not what it means. Let's read it in context. Verse 10, he said to me, the angel said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. That time is near. And so the trigger for the strange statement in verse 11 is the end of verse 10. The time is near. The time is near. The background of much said over and over is the book of Daniel. And the specific background for 
Verse 11 here is found in Daniel 12. Let me just read Daniel 12, verses 9 and 10. The archangel Michael says to Daniel, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So what we have in chapter 22, verse 11 of Revelation is fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 is describing a day when the wicked will act wickedly. And Revelation 22, verse 11 is describing the fulfillment of that day. In other words, there is coming a day when not only will sinners get what they deserve, but they will get what they want. One day, God will lift his hand of common grace, and there will be no more time for repentance. And the evildoer will go on doing his evil because that's what he wants to do. And the filthy will go on being filthy. And he talks there not about uh, literal dirt, but about, but about dirtiness of sin. The, 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 the filthy sinner will continue in their filthy sin because they want their filthy sin more than they want God. And what a dreadful day that will be for those apart from God. But today is not that day. That day is coming. But by God's grace, it's not today. Today is the day of salvation. Today, unbelievers can still repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope for forgiveness and everlasting life. And that's why John concludes, thirdly, with a gospel call to come to Christ. We see this in verse 17, and we'll close with this. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And then let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. Church, this is a call to sinful men and women to come to Christ. To come to faith in Christ. To come to the cross. To come and drink of the living water that He offers. That satisfies. He says it's without price. It's free for the taking. If we come to Christ. The Son of God who came the first time and lived the perfectly sinless life that we never could and died for us on the cross in the place of sinners, the same Jesus is returning, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And he is bringing with him judgment. And on that day, it will be too late to come to him. But today... Is the day of salvation, and all sinners who come to him in faith will be rescued and saved. And so my exhortation to you, who, if you have not come to faith in Christ, is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. And to those who have, 
Friend, as we did this morning for I don't know how many times, we took the bread. We too need to keep coming to Jesus. If we have any hope of living faithfully for him, if we want to remain faithful to him, to persevere through times of suffering and trial, in these days and the days ahead, we need to keep coming to that well and drinking deeply of Christ until we see him face to face. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do echo the words of your servant. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. But in your divine wisdom, you have seen fit to not have your son return yet. It's not yet time. And so, Father, in the interim, we thank you so much for this book. And we ask that you would use the words, the breath of your spirit that's found in these words to equip us, to prepare us, to strengthen us, to give us courage, to build our faith, to build our hope, to build our love and our affection for Christ. Father, so that we will be faithful to you no matter what suffering comes our way. That we will not turn our back on you. We too, like John, we will not recant. Though we are exiled, though we are martyred, we will not turn our back. Because you have equipped us. You've prepared us. And you've reminded us that there's coming a day when he will come back. Our king and his city will be all that we see. And his glory will be all that we behold. And we will worship him and reign with him and serve with him forever. Father, we thank you so much for this. May these truths compel us to continue to grow in our sanctification, to grow in our worship, Lord, and to grow in our faithfulness to take the gospel to the nations, beginning with our next-door neighbors and co-workers across the hall. Father, may you strengthen our church to be ready to meet the challenges that are ahead through the truth that we find in this precious book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.